Two weeks ago, James spoke a prophetic judgment on the unrighteous, unbelieving rich for how they've sinned against others and oppressed them. And we said it was an encouragement. We said, well, why would James write this prophetic judgment to unbelievers to a letter, uh, in a letter to believers? And we said it's an encouragement to those believers that they would not covet. These believers that, based on chapter 1, uh, were relatively poor, were being oppressed by uh, uh, the rich people in their cities. And so it's encouragement not to covet. But it's also an encouragement for this. God will execute justice. When you're the person under the thumb of the oppressor, this is good news to hear that God will execute justice. And that line of thinking continues today. So James is going to give four practical pieces of wisdom, wisdom for everyday life in this text. James 5, 7 through 12. Uh, uh, there's a few Bibles in front of you or underneath you if you want to grab one. But this is where we're walking through. We're going to continue our, our series in James, finish it next week. James 5, 7 through 12. I want you to look at verses 7 and 8 because the first thing he gives them is this. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Verse 7 and 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. So saying, be patient. Don't, don't resort to hatred or violence. Don't retaliate with violence against your oppressors. Be patient till the Lord's coming. Jesus will return. Jesus will set the world right. He will come and judge righteously. Justice will be served. It will be served. You can bank on that. So he's breathing encouragement to their souls to, to endure and to continue in these trials, knowing that justice will be served. And so he gives this illustration of the farmer. He's saying, be patient like a farmer who's waiting on harvest. And what does the, father do, or the farmer do? Trust God to bring the rain. So the, the farmer works hard at planting the crops and patiently waits for the rain to come and the crop to grow. So he's saying, you can be patient. In this trial, in whatever trial you are in, whatever suffering you're in, you can be patient because the Lord Jesus will return. You can be patient and not return hate for hate or violence for reliance because when the Lord comes, he will make good on his promise. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will execute justice. So he says, strengthen your hearts with this. This, this text literally means strengthen your hearts. It's also translated as stand firm. Take courage. What he's saying is stand firm in trusting that the Lord is in control. It's very similar to what Paul says at the end of his resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 58, he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable. That's the same language steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So how does this work out practically? How is this practical wisdom for everyday life? Well, like the farmer, you trust God with the things you cannot control. 
and you honor God with the things you can control. This is what patience means. Patience is not inactivity. Just to clarify, patience is not laziness. Laziness is when we don't tackle our responsibilities that are given to us by God. And worry, on the flip side, is when we tackle God's responsibilities. But patience is when we tackle our God-given responsibilities and trust him to take care of his. That's patience. It's like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sit back and just say, hey, God, bring the rain. You know what the farmer does? He keeps working. He plants the crops and he keeps working. So, so patience is not inactivity. Patience is not laziness. Sam Albury in his commentary puts it this way. Knowing the end with confidence. Talk about the Lord's return. Knowing the end with confidence makes it possible to bear something otherwise virtually unendurable. James's readers can be patient because Jesus will return and their hardship will come to an end. When there's no light at the tunnel, you want to die in the tunnel. He's saying, when you know and have confidence in, the Lord will return and execute justice and remove this hardship from every aspect of your life, you can endure what seems to be unbearable. You can endure this with this hope of glory before you, this joy set before you like Jesus. Then James returns back to our speech. This feels like a hard right turn, but stick with me. Know the context. So number two, don't complain about one another. You're like, what? It's a weird, it's a weird shift. Well, look at it. Verse nine, brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. And what James is getting at is that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, we are tempted to turn against one another. It is very tempting. When we're stressed out, when we're squeezed out by the, the pressures of life and the trials in our life, when we're wounded by injustice, when we've been sinned against by others, it's very easy to turn against one another and start complaining about one another. Hurt by trials, we then turn and hurt our brothers and sisters. And so James repeats himself in this context. He said this already before, but he says it again. And it's tacked with the reality that Jesus, the judge, is coming. Earlier, it was rooted in that we're a family. Don't grumble against one another. Don't complain against one another. Because we're a family. We're brothers and sisters. And, and this, he's tacking it with, don't complain against one another because the judge is coming back. His coming is near. Nearness doesn't mean immediacy. It means he's on the other side of the door and there's very little in between him coming back, his return. Little stands in the way. It could happen at any moment. So when we think about this, if this is true, if there's little that stands in his way, we want to be found faithful and loving when he returns. Because Jesus, the judge, stands at the door and he assesses our words. Now, in Christ, the Father is pleased with you forever. 
That's positionally. But practically, Jesus isn't pleased when we grumble and complain against one another. He doesn't. He's called us to love our neighbor as ourself. You remember that from earlier in James when he called about the royal law? We're to speak encouragement and build up one another and honor one another with our words, not turn on one another and complain about one another. Then he guides us to our lineage of God's people who endured. Number three, look to past examples of suffering and patience. Now we're going fast because James is just pithy and practical and is getting at it. Be patient till the Lord comes. Don't complain against one another. Look to past examples of suffering and patience. Verse 10. You'll see this is marked out because each time he starts with brothers and sisters. So third piece of wisdom. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. So this is an example, like the farmer, another example of patience. The Old Testament prophets, they endured suffering and were patient in trusting God with justice. Now, does that mean they didn't speak against injustice? Absolutely not. I mean, just like the farmer. His patience doesn't mean inactivity. He didn't plop on his lazy boy and just wait for the rain to come. He continues to work. And so the prophet does too. He's patient. But while he's patient, he speaks against the injustice. Even in the midst of his persecution and trials, the prophets stood boldly and spoke against injustice. Entrusting God to execute ultimate justice. But they stayed faithful to God in the midst of trials. And James says, we count them as blessed who endured. Now think about this. What prophet could we be talking about? Well, all of them, but there's one, like, one example that hits me in the forehead. It's Jeremiah. I think about Jeremiah's life, the prophet Jeremiah. He was called by God to tell his people, judgment is coming. You're going to be conquered by by Babylon, and they're going to take you into captivity. That was his message. I, this is probably where the, the phrase was coined, don't hate the messenger, because they hated the message and the messenger. Not a fan of this dude. Just don't like him. His family betrays him. He's beaten and put into stocks. He's thrown into prison by the king. He's threatened with death. And if that was enough, he's then thrown into a cistern. And you're like, what's a cistern? Uh, it's just bad news, okay? We don't need to get into all the detail. This is bad news. Did he quit? Did he give up? Did he respond with violence and hatred? No, he remained faithful. Patient in suffering. Enduring to the end. And we count him as blessed because he endured. Family, by God's grace, you can endure. You don't have to do join the fad of deconstruction of the faith and walk away from Jesus and his church. You don't have to. You can endure. By God's grace, the Old Testament prophets and all these examples in our rich heritage endured to the end. You can rebel against the trending fad and stay faithful to the Lord to the end. You can endure. 
you can't endure. And he's not done. Job. It goes to the Old Testament prophets, it goes to Job. And if you know Job at all, Job is tons of chapters of suffering. In the Old Testament, Job is the book of suffering. Intense loss. He's afflicted with spiritual warfare. And while he bitterly complained at times, he endured to the end, trusting God. He lamented. He grieved to God. He didn't take the advice to curse God and die. Now, his faith at times was weak, but it was there. It may be a small faith for you in the midst of suffering, but what matters is the object of your faith, not the size of your faith. His faith was weak at times, but it was in Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. And so you may be struggling in the midst of your trial and suffering. Your, your faith may feel like it's growing dim. But you can hold on like Job, believing that God is still holding on to you. To believe and feel that he loves you. That maybe at this moment you don't believe a lot. Maybe you're struggling with doubts and questions, but you can believe that he is for you and he loves you. You can feel his love through the Holy Spirit who's pouring it into our hearts. How can I say that? The Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's what James tells us. We saw the outcome of Job's life, Job's suffering. God blesses him at the end. God sanctifies him through this whole process. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. That means he is abounding in steadfast love. Merciful means he doesn't give us what we deserve. Job opens up with how uh, Job walked with the Lord. But even in that, we know from our doctrine of sin, from Genesis 1 through 3, that he was also a sinner. So what did Job deserve? To be cast off from God. Does Job get that? He loses a ton. He's wrecked, even his health. He's scraping his boils at one point. But you know what he doesn't lose? His relationship with the Father. Remember, James opened up this letter with this. In James 1, 2 through 4, consider it a great joy. This, this hurts on Western ears. But consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever, not if, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance meaning endure and while you're enduring let it have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete lacking nothing enduring suffering is a major path God uses to sanctify us to grow us so to consider it a great joy a great joy 
The Lord is compassionate and merciful. I'm going to keep repeating that because it's simple yet profound, especially for those who are in the midst of suffering and trials. Because it's very tempting to doubt God's love for you when we are afflicted and we're hurting or being slandered or being bullied. We endure by holding onto the reality that God's steadfast love endures forever. Family, why can you endure and not jump on the bandwagon? Because his steadfast love for you endures forever. You can endure because his love will endure. Now, allow me to return to the prophet. Because I want us to think about this. This is what we have to wrestle with. Some of these pithy things that James says, he just keeps plowing forward, but there's these little nuggets that are like, oh, this is, this is powerful. This hits us in a different way. This comes at us. It's a bit confrontational. But think about the injustice in our world. The prophets, what? They patiently endured suffering and trials all the while speaking against the injustice in their world. Think about the injustice in our world. The predatory lending, the racism, the abortions, the domestic violence. Waiting for Jesus means we have confidence that he will set this world right. He will judge and bring about the new heavens and the new earth where injustice is eradicated. But trusting in Jesus' return means we are active with what we can do now. Speaking and working against injustice. Now this, this feels heavy, but you know what? His return takes the pressure off of us trying to will into existence a global utopia. You're not, you're not the judge. You're not the savior. You're not the Messiah coming in the last days to set the world right. He's going to create the global utopia so that takes off the pressure of us trying to will that into existence. But his lordship means we care about justice now. Now. Now, not saying I'm waiting on the Lord, a.k.a. I'm inactive and I do nothing. Micah 6, 8 makes it clear. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. It, it means more than this. Because... I'm going to say this a little bit because this should be a 10-part series on justice and injustice. But it means more than this, but at the least, this means Jesus cares that you vote and how you vote. It also means how you care for your neighborhoods and city. It also means how you act justly in your personal life. To not oppress to care for the marginalized, the widows, the orphan, the single mom, the abused, the addict, the wounded. This is our lineage, family. Just as our lineage is prophets who endured trials in the midst of speaking against injustice, our lineage also includes Christians for two millennia who have started hospitals and relief uh, care and relief organizations and foster care, pregnancy help centers, 
adoption centers. Like we care about justice and mercy because our God is just and merciful. I mean, we send missionaries to plant the gospel and see people transformed. This is our lineage. Inactivity is not patience. Patience is doing, stepping into our God-given responsibilities and simultaneously trusting God to take care of his. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, this is definitely confrontational. Because what I'm saying is the Lord's return for me is a joy, a delight, a hope. But the reality is the Lord's return him standing at the door ready to knock is not a joy delight for you. It's a, it should be a warning. It's scary. He's going to execute justice. And what I'm saying is, we, I, I'll speak to myself, we're not better than you. We're not saying that we, we ascended into this Christianity and we've got this figured out. What we're saying is that we are not scared of God's future wrath coming upon us because we believed in Jesus and the wrath that we deserve has been diverted to Jesus and not to us, and you can enjoy that too. You can actually turn and flip and see that the Lord's coming is a delight, a joy. That his coming is not something to be scared of because he's going to judge you, but he's actually going to delight in you and welcome you into the new heavens and new earth, but it only comes in you repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, the God-man, who not only came to earth as a baby, lived perfectly as a man, died in your place for your sins, but rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns right now, and he will return at any moment. That's the good news. That's what you must believe. That's what you need to come to. And then this just turns into the light for you. Not walking on eggshells, fearing, is he gonna come? Is he going to come? What's going to happen? What's it going to look like? How many Tim LaHaye books do I have to read? Like, what is going to go down? Like, sorry, it's an unnecessary joke. But, but now you can turn and put your hope in Jesus. He is the grace of God to you and to us. He is compassionate and merciful. To call on him, to put your faith in him, is to receive and enjoy his forgiveness, his love, his adoption. Justification, where you're declared righteous before the Father. And this beautiful, abound, abundant life now and eternal life forever with him. Meaning, you get the real gift of Christmas. You get Jesus. And lastly, James gives us one more piece of wisdom for everyday life. He says, in essence, speak truthfully. Verse 12, another feels kind of like a curveball, but he says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. 
He's saying speak with integrity. James goes back uh, to us in our words, in our speech, and how we speak. He's saying our words should be so consistent and dependable that they guarantee reliability. And think about it. Think about how practical this is, this wisdom. Husband, will you take out the trash? I swear by heaven I will this time. Wait, this time? What's been happening? What's been happening? Now you have to say you swear by heaven. You have to swear an oath to convince me that you're actually going to do the thing I'm asking you to do. Something's gone wrong. Like, I can't trust you to say yes anymore. You have to make oaths. That's what he's getting at. Daughter, are you going to come home at curfew? Sure. Wait, is that a yes or a no? I want some clarity here. Church member, will you commit to serve this team? Maybe. I'm thinking about it. Like, what? I think overall, this is a pithy uh, word to the non-committal. No whoops there. Uh, don't flip-flop. Don't waver. Don't keep dragging your feet in the nether sphere. Like, actually say yes or no and let that be the truth. Now, in regards to suffering in this context, this includes our prayers to God. In the midst of your suffering, sometimes we start making these bargains, and they're like oaths. Like, Lord, if you give me out of this suffering, I will stop blank. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop going to this. I'll end this relationship, whatever. We make this oath with God. And James say, no, no, no. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Speak with integrity. Speak that is trustworthy, dependable, reliable. This, this has to include also half-truths and exaggeration. We're in our stories or in, in what we think we're sensing from the Lord. We're like, man, it's really this big. This is what we think the Lord is leading us to, and it's like this big. It's addressing half-truths, where we soften things, where we lie, when people ask us a penetrating question and we give them the top of the glacier and nothing underneath the water, they say, no, no, speak with integrity, speak yes. And when you say yes, let it be yes. And when you say no, let it be no. Now, in light of the whole scripture, oaths aren't completely forbidden. So we have to interpret let scripture interpretate scripture here. Because God himself swears oath. Paul calls God uh, to be his witness to what he's saying is true in his writings. Covenants are made. Marriage vows are committed to. So James' point is that we don't need to swear oaths regularly to convince people we are speaking the truth. That's where we're at. Always trying to convince. No, no, I'm really speaking the truth this time. I was talking with someone recently. And they're okay with this. So I'll tell you, it's just kind of insight into honest, real conversations. I asked this person, like, do you think we have a good relationship? Do you think we have a good relationship? And they said, yes. And I said, why? Because, like, I love you. You love me. And, like, we're in this. And they said yes. And I said, I don't know if we are because I can't trust you. So much relationship is 
on top of, built upon, being trustworthy. And that's what James is getting at. Are you actually speaking the truth in whatever answer you're giving? Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Sam Albury, again, writes this about this. He says, we shouldn't need to emphasize the truthfulness of a particular part of our speech because all of our speech should be true and trustworthy. James is not ruling out Christians speaking under oath in a courtroom, but ruling out ever needing to outside of one. Everything we say should be true. Our words should be enough. That's what James is getting at. Even in the midst of suffering and trials, we speak honestly, we speak truthfully, we speak with integrity. Why? All undergirded with the good news that Jesus is the truth. And so if this is like a big wrestle for you because maybe fear of man and you, you uh, consider people bigger than God in your eyes and so that you're more concerned about what they think about you than what actually God has said about you, the truth of the gospel is that you are declared righteous and accepted by God the Father so that you can speak the truth even when you're thinking, what is this person going to think about me? You can actually not lie. You're actually free to speak honestly. And not deny what's actually happening. Because your relationship is secure with the Father. Secure. So with this text, we know that Jesus' resurrection changes everything. But so does his promised return. It changes everything. Everything he said here is rooted in the reality of Jesus coming back. We are to be patient and endure trials. Why? Because of the hope of glory before us. We're to endure suffering. Why? Because the Lord will put it into our suffering. This is not the end of the story. King Jesus will execute justice. He'll set the world right and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Breathe this in as a deep encouragement and fuel for you to keep running the race. You may in, be in the midst of the tunnel, but by God's grace, know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There is. He will return. He will execute justice. And because of that, let's endure to the end. Father, I, I pray for this. I ask of this. I ask you to do this in us. I pray that you would stir up our hearts. Meaning that you would strengthen our hearts and that we would come alongside you and strengthen our hearts standing firm in this reality, in this truth. That the suffering that is so near and in our face that feels difficult to look past, that you would eclipse that by the reality of your second coming. That we, we would be able to think and act like Paul, that this is light momentary affliction in comparison to the glory that awaits us. To the beauty 
of seeing you in your radiant glory and holiness and justice and love and omnipotence and mercy and kindness. We pray like our ancestors, come Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name we pray.